Morning and welcome to Deep in History. This is your co-host Marcus Grodi, joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. I'm coming to you from the Coming Home Network studios in Ohio, and uh, Monsignor Steenson's coming from the back country of northern Minnesota. Right, right, Monsignor. That's right, and it's it's autumn in the air up here. Yeah, if those of you that are able to see the uh, the videos of us sitting here, you look in my background, and of course I'm surrounded by good Christian symbols. Monsignor's surrounded by the symbols of the North. He's got a, a loon arising from the lake. <laughs> well, yeah, my, that's my daughter's painting, she, or photograph. She did that one. That's, that's a great <laughs> picture, awesome yeah. picture. But welcome, Monsignor, and, and those of you for joining us Thank you for joining us on the continued study of St. Irenaeus's wonderful book, Against Heresies. And um, I know, Monsignor, you made a comment earlier as we were just joining that this study has been an enrichment for you, right? It has. I found, I found it's, done, um, a, it's been a wonderful blessing to my prayer life. Um, yeah, it's gotten, you know, it, Lockdowns and things like that are hard on the spiritual life, and yeah. um, I, I just found that it's really helped me to pray better. And one of the reasons I want us to do this is because those of you who uh, pray the Liturgy of the Hours are going to get a snippet from this book from time to time over the year, right? Over the two-year cycle or mm -hmm. three-year cycle. Or those of you that are in apologetics and you're fighting for the truth of the church, you're going to know a number of quotes from Irenaeus. But it's so great to be forced to read from cover to cover, slowly, to get the full context of the book, which is what we've been doing. For me, I the reason the book has been so important to me is it. It helps fill out that statement by John Henry Cardinal Newman, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, his idea of development as we understand how the faith over time uh, becomes enriched by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But he says to become deep in history is a cease to be Protestant. Well, to me, I, I'm always living a challenge to that statement. Is it true? I mean, it certainly helped me become Catholic, but... Is it true for everyone? Well, when I look at the writings of Irenaeus, we're at a certain time of history, and we're becoming mm -hmm. deeper in history by pausing long before the developments that came later in the church. We're pausing in this, in in toward the end of the second century, to ask the question: What was the faith like in the year one seventy five A.D. And there's no better place to go to find that out than in Irenaeus. That's that's right. That's very good. Good point. You know, and so now Monsignor and I had a long conversation about this, and we've enjoyed the last couple of weeks where we've been slowly, almost sentence by sentence, going through book three. But if we continue to do that, uh, I'm almost positive our Lord Jesus would come again before we finish the book especially given what's going on in our world right now. But anyway, that's another topic for another time. So we decided that what made sense was to, to, to approach this book as if we were teaching a course in a university, we would not have the privilege of, of, of many moons to go through it at our leisure, that what we've decided to do is to commit ourselves to finishing book three in two or three sessions. Is that right, Monsignor? That's right. And I was just looking. Um, we're almost at midterm here when you look at the <laughs> the depth of the book. We've actually done pretty good, Marcus. <laughs> we did. We got through books one and two fairly quickly. Yeah. And actually, you're right. If I divide the book actually 
at the end of book three, I should put my reading. If we if we put that at the end of book three, which is I think is on three hundred and seven in this, yeah. it is. Yeah. Then yeah, if we look at that, I mean that is that that is halfway through. So yeah. those of you watching, be ready for the midterm exams that will be ready then in about two or three weeks. So the way we thought we'd approach this is we'd look at it this way. If you read the rest of book three, what you find out, you get a bigger picture. And I strongly encourage those of you that are very interested in Irenaeus to read all the way through book three now and ask yourself the question, what, what was he trying to accomplish? What, what is his purpose in book three? Um, and, you know, book one, he identifies the Gnostic teachers and their teachings. Books two, he addresses those false teachings. Book three, he does that by uh, focusing on the answers that are given in the Gospels and in the epistle writings. And specifically, he's addressing the false ideas that the Gnostics have about explaining essentially the data from Scripture about God and about Jesus Christ. And I think that's important, Monsignor. In other words, he's not merely addressing these false teachers and their ideas and where they've come from. These false teachers are basing their ideas on the Scriptures. That's right. Driving home the point that um, these are not independent folks. They are, they are people that have been evangelized, um, in some cases probably baptized, and they fell away and pursued these uh, false teachings. It's actually a problem that has existed from the beginning. It's, if you will, the way the devil tries to divide the church and has divided the church by, I hate to use the word inspire, but uh, uh, by lead folk who are reading scriptures to, to be caught by conundrums in scripture mm -hmm. and to try and explain those conundrums. And, and the problem is that when we do that, we're also fed by our own pride, our own sense of self-worth, uh, our own desire to be known, as Irenaeus says in an earlier place, to be known more than our teacher. Mm -hmm. And so with those drives, um, sinful drives, I mean, mea culpa, we can, any one of us, can can read scripture and say that well, this doesn't fit. How do we explain this? And then be, then find ourselves pulling away from center to come up with our own explanations of it. And that's really what Irenaeus was trying to do during the. He was, that, that's what he was confronting. All these different folk that had these different ideas that they got from reading scripture. And Marcus, we pointed this out along the way too. It's neat when we come across these passages where Irenaeus is not simply doing controversialist theology, um, but he has the eternal soul of these people in mind that he's writing against. And uh, every once in a while, we, it pops up. He offers a prayer for these Gnostics yeah. that they'll find their way home to the truth. Yeah. It it, 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 we're so early in the church, Irenaeus, who, who was converted by Polycarp, who was converted by John, or at least they were discipled by that. So we have Jesus, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus. And so the great commission that our Lord gave to his apostles in Matthew 28, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've taught you. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the world. You know, that, that, that's still ringing, if you will, in the ears of Irenaeus to the point where mm -hmm. that's still his goal. Salvation is through Jesus. That's what Irenaeus is emphasizing. And 
So the 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 two main points, if you if you can summarize these Gnostics into two main points, which is tough, but it seems like the two main issues that Irenaeus is dealing with for the rest of the book of is number one that there is only one God. The Gnostics have all these different permutations to try and explain all the conundrums. Um, you know, how can a perfect God, a perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God be connected to our lives? How is that possible? Because we are perfect. So how do you explain that? Well, they've got a gazillion explanations. Irenaeus says, there's one explanation. We've received it from Jesus to the apostles. It's come down to us an apostolic deposit of faith, which is the pillar and bulwark of the church. Here's the answer. That's right. And then the other issue is this man, Jesus. Well, how is he God? How is that possible? And they have all their permutations on that. And the truth is that the church will deal with a lot of these different views in an official way in a hundred or two hundred years after this, at the different councils, dealing with the different views on on Christ that arise, adoptionism and modalism and all these different ways that they'll they'll continue to percolate in the church. Right, Monsignor? That's right. Yeah. And what we, so in other words, if, if we wanted to, which we're not going to, that one way to approach this is for us to spend a lot of time looking at each of the Gnostics' views and then how did Irenaeus address it, you know, and that's one way to do that. But as I can contemplate us doing that, the reason I was led away from it is that there, these really aren't the problems that we deal with anymore in, in our world. If anything, we're dealing with atheists more than we're dealing with these multiple different ways of explaining that. So what Monsignor and I decided to do is that what's really important about the rest of Book 3 are not so much his answers to these specific issues, but that there are, there are items of the apostolic faith that he took for granted, that he had received, that poked their head from time to time, out of the arguments. And we're going to look at those gems throughout the book three as, as key witnesses to that apostolic faith that he had received that uh, to him is the foundation that he builds his argument upon. But to begin with, I just want to give two quick places, and there's a number of these, which those of you that are going to read the rest of book three will underline and find, where in his answer to the Gnostics, he just summarizes the definitive answer uh, about God and Christ, and which we take for granted today because of the creed that we say every Sunday. And one example of that is on the bottom of page 222, where he says, For it was not Christ who then came down on Jesus, nor is Christ one and Jesus another, but the Word of God, who is the Savior of all and the Lord of heaven and earth, who is Jesus, as we have, as we have before said, shown, who also took flesh, and was anointed by the Father with the Spirit, he became Jesus Christ. So there's a, a clear expression of, of what we now assume is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, the Word made flesh. Mm -hmm. Right, Monsignor? Mm -hmm. And one other place, just to draw your attention, to do another quick summary. We could spend a, a whole session on that. We don't want to because we want to get to smaller things, it's on the bottom of page 239, where after, you know, many pointing out flaws in, in, uh, in the rest of book three, he's building his argument on the gospels and the epistles. And that's the point. You know, this is where the Gnostics got their 
faith from and their false views are from their readings of the Gospels and the Epistles. So Irenaeus proves that from the Gospels and the Epistles, you don't get what they're saying, you get the truth. And so at the bottom of 239, he summarizes it again. Thus, no other God or any other play Roma did the apostles proclaim, nor one Christ who have suffered and risen again while another raised, raised him up and remained impassive, but one and the same God and Savior and Christ Jesus, who was raised from the dead. And the faith which is in him they used to preach to those who believed not in the Son of God and to instruct them out of the prophets that the Christ whom God promised he would send, he hath sent, even Jesus, whom they crucified, and God raised him up. You know, when I hear that, Monsignor, he's answering that, but he's, he's slowly drifting into preaching. <laughs> he is, he's a bishop. <laughs> He's, he's the pastor of Lugdunum. That's right. He's preaching. Yeah, he's preaching. So, and, as, yeah. and as you said, yeah. his goal is to convert these Gnostics. Yeah. Uh, but not just condemn them. So with that as an overview, what Monsignor and I look, we've just picked a number of, of quotes throughout the book three that we'd like to focus some time on. All right, Monsignor. So why don't we turn to the first one that we've selected, and that's on page 229. And uh, Monsignor, why did we have, why did we pick this page out as a place for us to pause? Um, all right. Um, I actually, I want to go back, if you don't mind. Oh, no, that's fine, Monsignor. Just to point out a couple of things that I think people might be interested in because um, okay. as we approach as we approach the season of Christmas, um, I just think there were two things that jumped out at me. So on page 226, yes. um, um, in, uh, in uh, book three, chapter 10, uh, section three, mm -hmm. um, You know, where are we here? Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, I was on the other page. It starts at the previous page, the Song of Zechariah. For people that, you know, use the daily office, oh, um, yes. they, pray, they pray this every day. Um, and what I was, what struck me about it is um, that he, he uses the Song of Zechariah to point out that um, what was brought to Zechariah was not a, a, a new God, a knowledge of a new God, but simply a knowledge of salvation. And I thought it was really interesting because one of Irenaeus's points is he wants to show that there is a, a continuity, a harmony between the old covenant and the new covenant. And to pick out Zachariah, the priest, <laughs> um, is brilliant. It seems to me, how could, how could Zachariah, um, be a Gnostic because <laughs> yeah. he's faithful to his own priestly calling in of the old covenant. But now he has been revealed this uh, new knowledge of salvation. So I just thought that was one thing that kind of, yeah, um, as it says there in the middle of 226, yeah. this therefore is the knowledge of salvation and not another God, nor another father, nor the deep or the play Roman, blah, 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 blah. But the knowledge of salvation was the knowledge of the son of God. Yeah, he starts preaching. Right. Um, and then, Marcus, the other one that I just thought was interesting is on page 227 um, in section four. Um, there he's talking about um, the nativity story. And so we meet up with the shepherds and with the angels of the nativity. And I loved it because he's pointing out how insanely inconsistent the Gnostics are. Um, because if what the Gnostics say is true, the angels were celebrating um, the arrival of this this new entity from um, you know some Ogdoad from you know beyond time. Why were they? First of all, he said, why are they celebrating 
at the nativity, at the birth of our Lord, when according to their system, it should be at his baptism when the dove descends on, on. So they're saying, you know, what were those not, what was that choir practice back then in Bethlehem? Oh. Because they, you know, they didn't, they would not have been celebrating the birth of Mary's son. They would have been celebrating the descent of the dove on Mary's son. You know, you, you reminded me of something. Mm-hmm. So in other words, Irenaeus takes the, the nativity story seriously. They're authoritative, trustworthy yeah. parts yes. of the gospel. And he bases part of his argument to disprove the false teaching based on that story. That's right. right? That's right. It reminded me when I was... Um, doing some graduate studies at a Catholic university, and I won't give the name of that Catholic university, studying under a visiting priest from Louvain, Belgium, who was known for writing a book disclaiming that certain books of the New Testament were not really written by Paul. They were written by who knows, you know. So in other words, he was really, everything in his teaching was built on, on, um, on higher criticism undercutting the scriptures. And in the lecture he was giving on the New Testament, he just as a flippant side comment, he says, well, of course, no modern scholar takes the nativity story seriously. I know. Isn't that, it's tragic. I mean, he just flippantly says, yeah, they all believe that they were added later or, well, I, and I, I'll tell you what I did. I was just on my journey to the church at the point. I wasn't. I was still a Protestant minister, and I was taking Catholic courses on the journey. And I went up to him after. He was a nice priest, and we we got along fine. And I, I said, "Well, you just told me that that no modern scholars take these stories seriously." And he said, "That's right." And I pulled out of my pocket my first rosary, and I said, "Do any of them pray this?" And he just, he, he kind of laughed and he says, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, that, or whatever his answer was. But the point is that, I mean, I think if you undercut these, not only do you totally, if you throw these out, not only do you undercut Irenaeus's foundation for arguing against his Gnostic opponents, but it basically says all the nativity stories that Catholics have been praying in their rosaries are all makeup. They're all false. And yeah. it's like a zipper. It unzips everything, because yeah, when you're done, always. then is there anything in the New Testament you can trust? Exactly, exactly. You know, I just uh, just conclude on that thought. Um, over on the next page, on page two twenty eight, um, um, right in the middle of the page, he brings out another thing about the nativity story that I I find really wonderful here. If the angels who were from the Ogdoad were glorifying one, the shepherds another, then error and not truth had been brought down to them by these angels of the Ogdoad. <laughs> so, I mean, the point being that according to the Gnostics, the angels were praising one God, one son of God, and the shepherds another. And he said, that's insane. Um, you know, that they were, they were, they happened to be in the same locale, but they were praising very different things. Um, and once again, your argument implies that the reason Irenaeus is able to make that argument is because he can assume that the Gnostics took scripture seriously. Yeah, that's right. If, so, if, if they didn't take scripture seriously, they would say, well, who cares? I mean, you know, what, what the Bible says. But they, that, they were able to be on the same ground and say, this is inspired words, so that's right. you're, you're contradicting it. It's a, it's a very powerful argument that he raises against Gnosticism here, um, especially the ones that took the Gospel of Luke seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. And that you had you had on page two twenty nine, right? Yeah. Um, yep, yep. Yep. Section uh, six. Oh, okay. And the 
you asked what is significant about this and um, a teacher, what I hope I'd like to ask answer your question with is that when, <laughs> when Irenaeus writes, for which cause Mark also the interpreter and disciple of Peter began his written gospel as follows. This is, as far as I know, the earliest um, account of the, the who and the provenance of the gospel of who is the author and what's the provenance of the gospel of St. Mark. Um, and it seems like it, we're going to meet up with, the, in, a, in a few years, the Alexandrian fathers, for instance, are going to speak about this a little bit more origin, Will, but I think Irenaeus may be the first to um, give a clear account of the origin of the four gospels. The, um, yeah, I could remember, when you read these things so many times now in preparation, I could remember if it, in, in his early Earlier summary of the gospel of the canon, whether he had made that comment too, maybe not. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to look back, look so back and sure. say, but uh, I think yeah. you're right. I mean, we're, this is where we get the idea from that. Yeah. yeah. How how and why did Mark decide to put this down? Matt, we assume Matthew already existed. The Gospel of Matthew, probably in Hebrew. You know, maybe. Mark and Peter together saw the need for a Greek gospel because it's possible the only gospel at the time was Matthew's, which may have been in, still in Hebrew, mm -hmm. right? So with the, with the gospel spreading to the Gentile world, you had a lot of people that couldn't read Hebrew, so we need it in Greek. So maybe that was the motive behind Peter and Mark. Yeah. But of course, the Orthodox would say, you know, Peter um, sent Mark to Alexandria, and so um, so Greek would have been probably the common language in Alexandria. And, right, which we're going to run into in a little bit anyway when we talk about yeah, the Septuagint. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there is another reason on that page uh -huh. that's also there at the bottom. At the, at, at the very bottom, um, yeah, chapter 11, section 1. In course of preaching this faith, John, the disciple of the Lord, desirous by preaching of the gospel to remove the error which Serinthus had been sowing among men. And long before him, those who are called Nicolaitans, who are an offshoot of the knowledge falsely so called, to confront them and persuade men that there is but one God who made all things by his word, and not as they affirm that the Creator is one person, the Father of the Lord another, and that there is a difference of persons between the Son of the Creator and the Christ of the higher eons. Well, um, it goes on. It's a longish sentence. Right. But basically, the nutshell is to say that, um, that the Lord's disciple, desiring to cut off and establish the church in the church the rule of the truth, uh, namely that there is one God Almighty, etc., etc., etc. Thus he did begin in that instruction which his gospel contains, and he, then the prologue of John's gospel. So what, Marcus, what we have here is um, a remarkable witness from the third generation of John that it was the heretical teaching of Serinthus prompted him to at least write that first part of the Gospel of John. Yeah, I remember back when I was an evangelical pastor, I, I would often make the supposition that maybe behind John's use of the word, the word, logos, was to combat the Gnostics. But I wasn't sure of that. Well, here, here we have Irenaeus making that very clear Very clear. And his witness has to be taken very seriously because, remember, he's the disciple of Polycarp, the disciple of John. So there's a very close connection there. And another thing that jumps out at me, where Irenaeus says, and long before Serinthus, on the page of 230, top of 230, and long before him or Serinthus, those who are called Nicolaitans. Well, Nicolaitans is a, is a group of folk that, 
anyone reads the New Testament might, well, I've heard that term before. Well, in, in Revelation, when mm -hmm. the seven letters are being written to the seven churches, as our Lord Jesus speaks through John, and he's talking about the different churches, well, in Pergamum, um, when when our Lord says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, well, it goes down and says, so you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And they show up in those early churches. Yeah, yeah. So there's the connection again between John and the Nicolaitans, which was a motive for the gospel because of their influence in these churches that were under John's care. In in his mm -hmm. diocese, if you will. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Again, there's so much we can cover, uh, but we're trying to at least point out a few nice gems here. If we go to 231, Monsignor, at the bottom, right. um, in section three of chapter 11, right. we have a long paragraph. It on The entire section three deals with the question of the incarnation. I don't know that we need to read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it. But according to them, neither was the Word made flesh, nor Christ, nor he who was made out of them all the Savior. For the Word and Christ they will not have so much as to have come into this world. And for the Savior that he neither was incarnate nor suffered, but that he descended as a dove upon that Jesus who was made by special economy. And that having announced the unknown father, he ascended again into the Pleroma. As to the incarnation and passion, some attribute them to that Jesus who was made by special economy, who they say passed through Mary as water through a pipe. And then, of course, it goes on. But there, Monsignor, we're dealing with these, all these other ways of trying to understand the simple reality of the word becoming flesh. Yeah, we, we meet up with um, two very early heresies about um, the person of Christ here. Um, the, in the, he's talking about two different, distinctly different ideas about uh, Christ. The first one um, is, the adopt, is adoptionism. And that's the idea that um, the key event was when the, spirit, when the Spirit descended as a dove on Jesus. And we have the voice from heaven where God proclaims, this is my son. An adoptionist would say that's when the spirit descended upon the man, Jesus, and, and the, then the work of, um, of Christ began at that point, basically. Other than that, he was just a carpenter in Joseph's workshop. Um, the other, the other, one that we meet up with here is um, a more sophisticated kind of Gnosticism. Um, the one that says that, um, you know, Christ passes through Mary as water through a pipe. Um, and that's basically the heresy of Docetism. And the idea there being that the incarnation is not real, that, um, that uh, something that is pure spirit never really connected with um, with the human Christ. And so all sorts of bizarre things come out of that. I mean, we've read some of that already, you know, where um, it was Jesus, somebody else substituted for Jesus on the cross. It didn't really matter because um, the spirit wasn't gonna be suffering anyway, um, or that the, you know, the human Christ died a normal physical death and he's buried to this day in Jerusalem, and you know, um, but those are the two basic heresies yeah. that we meet up with in this in this one point here. It reminds me of when Irenaeus said a couple chapters earlier when he just says, "Look, we, we let's don't speak where God doesn't speak. Let's just accept what God tells us, mm -hmm. and don't go beyond that." Because what happens is there's a you know, so we we try and imagine how God of the universe became a human being. And then how, when we read the Gospels, well, how does that make sense? 
I mean, if, if God of the universe became a human being, so the Jesus that we read about is God, well, then why is he going at night to the top of a hill to pray? Mm-hmm. Um, why did he weep at the death of Lazarus? Um, why doesn't he know the date of the second coming? Um, why did the Holy Spirit have to come on him at baptism? Why, why was he, why did the scriptures say that he was raised, glorified because of his obedience? So we end up with these, these conundrums that became all kinds of problems in the next couple of centuries. Divided bishops from bishops. And, uh, you know, some of them got pretty violent as they argued yeah. about, does this, does this human being, Jesus, have two wills or one will? Is he one person or two persons? You know, is he a human being that's kind of like a zombie with a spirit that came down into him and then scooted away before he was died? You know, these are the issues that they're dealing with. And, you know, there are some modern manifestations of this as well. I remember getting into a very painful discussion years ago with some seminary classmates uh, about a class we were taking in, 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 at Harvard. And they were, the criticism was that you, you people that um, are always talking about how Christ is divine, you, you're basically treating him like um, this expression here, water passing through a pipe, you know, that Mary didn't have anything really to give to him. He just kind of passed through. So they, you know, they, that was the adoptionist view anyway. Yep. <laughs> and they were kind of accusing us of being more docetic because we, we um, emphasize so much the divinity of Christ. Well, obviously we weren't, but... But it's hard to have that balance. Yeah. And to a yeah. certain extent, it's impossible for us to get beyond the mystery of that. I mean, if you look at the history of spirituality in the church, for the first century of the church, it seems that the trend was to focus on the divinity of Christ in devotions. Mm -hmm. And then we had a move in the second towards his humanity which is why we end up with things like the sacred heart and an emphasis on, on, on that aspect of, of, of our Lord. And so it's, there's, it's trying to strike this balance. I think Irenaeus would say, it's a mystery. It's Leave a mystery. it a mystery. Yes. Because you take it any of those, you, you get any of these questions, you take too far. What happens is we get into places that we can't answer this side of heaven anyway, and we get mm -hmm. at each other's throats because we're arguing over which opinion makes the most sense. And Irenaeus was saying, as St. Paul said, don't get caught up in a battle of words. It's a mystery. And that's kind of what this book is about, dealing with all these yeah. people with their opinions. So there, there is a, an expression of these, in which, as I just mentioned, Father, will be um, uh, you know debates and battles as we move ahead. Mm -hmm. Let's move ahead as we to page yeah, before we before we jump to the one Please. that you're going to. Can I just close with one other thought here on yes. page two thirty three? Yes, in 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 chapter eleven, I I underline this uh, in section five as a remarkable uh, Eucharistic reference here, um, especially for, you know, we're, lots of our friends wonder where the Eucharist came from. Um, and what, what, what we have, you have to dig a little bit in this text, but what we have is, um, is the idea that um, by the transformation of earthly bread and, and wine, um, we are by grace given uh, the ability to, to participate in the uh, incomprehensible God. Um, so he says uh, at the very end of that paragraph uh, in, in section five, um, 
He in the last times by his son bestows on the human race the blessing of meat and the grace of drink. The incomprehensible by one who can be comprehended and the invisible by one who can be seen. For he is not without the father, but abideth in his bosom. So there, the connection with the Eucharist and Christ and then to the father. So it's a beautiful um, um, uh, reference, if you will, to the, um, the way that the Eucharist um, brings us into communion with the Blessed Trinity. And again, he leaves it as a mystery. Yes, he does. You know, he's not getting caught up with trying to say, someone raises their hand and says, well, how's that happen? And he doesn't come up with some big, it's a mystery. It's a reality because he takes the words of our Lord seriously. This is my body. This is my blood. Okay. We take that. How is it? Don't know. But it is. Yes. That's yeah. that's where to me that's where Irenaeus stops in the development yeah. of doctrine. He's just at that point. In, uh, yeah, that's right. If you will. Okay. So let's Okay. Uh, we go to years now. Okay. Yes. Um uh I think I had 234. Did I have Yeah, one god. That's right. That's what I have. Yeah. Section 7, 234. And these, observed, are the beginnings of the gospel, whereby is set forth one God, the maker of this universe, he whom the prophets too announced, and who by Moses formed the economy of the law, as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nor do they beside him recognize any other God or any other Father. Now, so great is the stability of these gospels, that the very heretics also bear testimony unto them, and endeavor each one to establish his own doctrine, setting out from these. Now, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. Yeah. I mean, this is saying that there's no question to the stability, inspiration, the authority of the Gospels. It's just this danger of how do you interpret them. And they all want to be in on the act, if you will. But in this case, he points out that they, each of these sects has a favorite gospel and they interpret everything um, according to their particular interpretation of that gospel. And I can't help but point out yeah. the fact that this has been the curse of the sola scriptura mentality for the last 500 years. Yeah. It's even a Protestant book that says there are over 30,000 different denominations in the world. There's a Protestant book that says that. Why? Because a sola scriptura leads to an infinite, if you will, cacophony of interpretations of Scripture. I think I've said before, when I was taking the homiletics in seminary, my, my seminary professor used to collect bad exegesis. That was his hobby. And he told, told us one day when he was driving in a car in, in southern United States listening to a Bible preacher, he heard the Bible preacher say something that was he found so funny he had to pull his car to the side of the road because the Bible preacher was saying to his audience that Jesus told his apostles that they were not to be concerned about the leaven of the Pharisees. And the Bible preacher says, you know why? Because what Jesus was trying to tell them that there were 12 of them. That's why they didn't have to be worried about the leaven of the Pharisees. Brilliant. You know, I mean, there's an example of not understanding what the scriptures are saying. So you end up with some, and and my homilies professor, what he was laughing about was because the preacher was 100% serious. He wasn't being tongue in cheek. He was serious. You don't have to worry about the leaven of the Pharisees because there's 12 of you. That's not what Jesus meant. And that's kind of what Irenaeus is saying. The prophets, going all the way back, the gospels, they teach the one God. Not what you guys are saying, guys. That's what he's saying. Because these heretics, every one of them wants to come up with their own unique doctrine. And Marcus, if I would just point out too, you know, 
I love the way Irenaeus shows how um, by misreading any particular gospel, you wind up with these views. And he points out four of them here, corresponding to the four gospels, the Ebionites, Matthew. Yep. Now, we haven't talked much about the Ebionites and, and what um, a patristic scholar would typically not want to include the Ebionites with the Gnostics. They, because they actually are very different. Um, the Ebionites are, they were Jewish Christian um, sect in the early church that believed that Jesus was just Jesus. Um, and uh, so they, they would have emphasized the human, the humanity of Christ. They would not have been interested in the idea that Jesus is the son of God. Um, he was just a great teacher. Then Marcion, the Marcionites, um, they were just the opposite from the Ebionites because the Ebionites wanted to praise the Old Testament world and emphasize continuity there. The Marcionites divide Old Testament and New Testament up. One's evil and one's good. And Marcion is famous for his edited version of the New Testament where he only accepts the gospel according to St. Luke. He, uh, then the, come the Docetists, um, he doesn't spell it out specifically here, but when he talks about uh, Mark's gospel here, um, those that say that, that Christ um, was without passion, um, um, that's the, the Docetist way of working that out. And then the Valentinians, those are the ones that Irenaeus was primarily concerned about. Um, they they wanted John for that was their principal text. So I just thought that was kind of interesting how he divides them up. That well, way. and that is boy, that is fascinating. I hadn't thought about that when I read that before because yeah. you know they have their because Matthew and Mark and Luke and John each have their different way of expressing it because they're you know mm -hmm. Matthew was writing we assume to the Jewish Christians. And so here we have this group that they're holding on to that. You know, Luke's getting too far out there. Mark's getting too well far out there. So they're going to, and, but it reminds me of, of modern Christians who see everything through the lens of their understanding of Paul. And they reject the actual teachings of Christ because they are, quote, too works-oriented so they take the works of the, the the teachings of Christ and posit them before the resurrection. Jesus was only speaking to the Jewish listeners before the cross and the resurrection, but after the resurrection, we've got Paul. Yeah. Well, they're doing the same problem that these guys were doing. Is establishing their own lens through which to look at the gospel. Remember how Martin Luther struggled with uh, the canonicity of St. James? <laughs> exactly. You know, he wanted to throw it out. A, a, what did he call it? A, 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 a epistle of straw. Yeah. Epistle of straw. Throw yeah. it out. Throw it out. Well, you know, I mean, that, that yeah. you know, and that's part of the reason why all those deuterocanonical books were thrown out of the canon because they were too Catholic. Um, why is it that our non-Catholic Christians just cannot stomach Mary? I hate to put it that way, but why? Because it's too Catholic. So they have a, there's a truncation of things. And that's what Larinaeus is talking about, earliest days of the church. It was a truncation of the gospel. You cut away those parts that don't agree with you. Or explain them away. So in other words, in a lot of times, the people that are doing that, even today, they say, we're doing the simple gospel, the gospel only, when they don't see really it's their tradition that they're using to clip away the things they don't want to listen to. And you know, Mar Marcus, I, I don't mean to get too political here, um, but I always am very distressed um, when I note in the lectionary of the Catholic Church, every once in a while, there's an editor that has clipped out 
verses from the Sunday readings that are a little awkward. And I, I think that is wrong. That's all I'll say. Oh, I, well, you can get me going on that too, because I've got a long <laughs> list of, of, yeah. uh, of. I've tried to wonder why. You know, they there are portions of Ephesians that never show up in the lectionary. Yeah. Why? Yeah. You know, one of my, I think, one of the crucial Old Testament texts is First uh, Kings eleven, where we see the sin of Solomon, and as a result of the sin of Solomon, um, the Lord declares he will divide Israel into two kingdoms. That's in 1 Kings 11. And there'll mm-hmm. be Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And the Lord, through a prophet, tells Jeroboam, you're going to get 10 of the tribes, and under the sons of David will be Judah and Benjamin. So there'll be the separation. And part of that, I think, shows up once in the lectionary as an Old Testament reading but it also shows up at least once in the office of readings. But in all those cases, the the scripture from 1 Kings 11 that I think is one of the most crucial is never reference. And that's when God speaks to Jeroboam and says, however, if you stay faithful, I will be with you. So God promises the separate to the separate kingdom that breaks away from Judah that if they stay faithful, God will be with them. He hasn't hasn't rejected them totally. He's told them, if you stay faithful, that's ignored. The only thing that's referenced is the break as a result of Solomon's sin. And I I think it's an important verse because it it speaks about those who have left the church. It implies that there's a foundation to believe that if they stay faithful, God will honor their faithfulness. And that's in, that's a foundation mm-hmm. in scripture. Anyway, you didn't want us to get too political, but I I'm sorry I took. It <laughs> well, I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> okay, well let's jump. I'm keeping an eye on time here. I want to jump okay. to at least one more, and that okay. is on page two thirty five. We've entitled this episode. What was it? Four and only four. Four and only four. Yeah. Four and only four. Well, it's this is the section that deals with that. Monsignor, if you would. All right. Um, We'll start at the top there. It is impossible that the gospel should be in number either more or fewer than these. For since there are four regions of the world wherein we are and four principal winds, and the church is as seed sown in the whole earth, and the gospel is the church's pillar and ground and the breath of life, it is natural that it should have four pillars from all quarters breathing incorruption and kindling men into life. Yep. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is. You know, I mean, it's, there's a little bit of ice of Jesus going on there, but it's, sure. but it's, uh, it's a, a, his way of affirming what, what even the Gospels, well, it's, no, that's wrong. Because the Gnostics are going to posit other Gospels. They are, yeah. The, the Gnostics want to say there are more than the four. So he's, he's giving a foundation to believe why it's these four and only these four. And so obviously he's dealing with these Gnostic texts. They're floating around. Um, and he's trying to answer the question that many Christians in this church probably are asking, what do we do about this book? You know, the, here's one from Thomas, or here's one from He mentions Jude, the, Judas, you know. the, the, yeah. the, the gospel according to Judas. Yeah. And, uh, and I can't remember if he mentions Thomas. I don't remember. I just, Thomas is the most famous of the, of the Gnostic gospels. Right. Yeah. But um, of course, a lot of critics make, fun of this and they they say you know um is this just poetry but i think for for um irenaeus it's more than poetry um uh, actually 
even if he never wrote this, there would still only be four Gospels. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think there, there was ever any doubt in the church that there are fewer or more than four Gospels. Um, and, but but um, I just, it's just, this is the most memorable thing I can think of in terms of showing how um, even, even nature cooperates with the Holy Spirit in this, four yeah. winds, four directions. I'm not sure if he addresses this. I did read it in one of the early fathers where, for example, in the early days of the canon, there were a number of books that eventually were not included as a part of the canon, but were highly read and highly uh, 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 appreciated. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the Shepherd of Hermas, for example. Right. Um, but I remember reading in one of these where they even admitted kind of like, well, we know that that, because we know the author's brother or something like that was one of the priests in Rome. Right. So because of that, they know that this, as good as this document is, doesn't go back to the apostles because they know that. They know who wrote it. They know his brother, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I think that's, the same argument that goes with these other Gnostic Gospels, they know they don't date back to the first century because they know the people and the groups that are passing them around and coming up with these strange ideas. That's right. Yeah. I also so, pointed out, he says that the Gospel is the church's pillar and ground. Yes. I know that's, that resonates with you in your heart. Well, it does, because Paul, yeah. you know, writes to Timothy that the, the church, the, the, uh, the body of Christ, is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And what Irenaeus wants to clarify here, that the reason the church is the pillar and bulwark is the gospel that it received from the apostles who received it from G the apostolic deposit. Yeah. That's why the church is the pillar and bulwark of truth, because it has the gospel. That's and there's and he speaks of gospel in the singular here. Um, you know, there's one gospel of Jesus Christ in in four books, if you will. Yeah. And it, the whole thing we have after that this stuff, which we're very familiar with. It says, "We're whereby it is evident that the artificer of all things, the Word." who sitteth upon the cherubims and keepeth all together, when he was made manifest unto men, gave us his gospel in four forms, kept together by one spirit. As David, imploring his passion, saith, Thou that sitteth upon the cherubims, shew thyself. For indeed the cherubim had four faces, and their faces are images of the dispensation of the Son of God. For the first living creature, it saith, was like a lion, denoting his real efficiency, his guiding power, his royalty. And the second like a calf, signifying his station as a sacrificer and priest. And the third having the face of a man, most evidently depicting his presence as man. And the fourth like an eagle in flight, declaring the gift of the Spirit flying down upon the church. So there's the background from the Old Testament, of these four faces of the cherubim, which will become an image that comes down to our day of the four Gospels, right, Monty? That's right. And I was just, um, um, you know, in the book of Revelation, um, Revelation 4.4, 4, um, around the throne, oh, sorry, where am I here? Around the throne and uh, Revelation four uh, six, around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. Um, yep. So. Yeah, and so, you know, in Christian art, well, I, I think we find the root of it here in St. Irenaeus, but 
from here will come that that beautiful tradition of depicting the four gospels as four living creatures. And many of our churches have um, have images of, of that. Yep. Yep. He goes on to go in detail with that. The first yeah, that according, spells out. he spells it out. John yeah. is priestly and efficacious. And then the gospel of John with a priestly stamp began with Zacharias, the priest. And then later Matthew for his part, proclaimed his birth as a man and Mark having made his beginning from the prophetic spirit. So those are the how Irenaeus connects. So that's how he gets eagle yep. to Mark. And John, um, uh, John is, is because of what? What is it that makes John, John? Um, according to John, his princely. His princely. An efficacious and glorious birth from the Father. So he sees it as the lion, right? Yeah. Um, full of, on this yeah, account, yeah, yeah. this gospel is also full of all confidence, for that is his character. And so there we have the, the lion character, if you will. Now, Marcus, I was, um, I was going to, I sent to um, you a, a little PowerPoint picture of um, a chart basically of how the four living creatures over in the early church get slightly assigned differently from time to time. Um, and the earliest is St. Irenaeus. Um, but we have um, Augustine and Jerome. They, um, they switch over a little bit. For instance, um, um, Irenaeus has Matthew, Mark, Luke, John as um, a man, the lion, man, the ox. Um, no, sorry, I got it upside down here. Matthew is the man. Mark is the eagle. Um, Luke is the ox, and John is the lion. Now, Augustine and Jerome agree that Luke is, uh, they agree about Luke. Luke is always the ox, but they disagree about the others. And the, the, now where we are in the Catholic Church today, the authoritative um, um, interpretation, I guess, is the one of Jerome, where Matthew is the man, um, Mark is the lion, uh, Luke is the ox, and John becomes the eagle. Um, because, you know, an eagle soars, you know, and all that. So they, they, they weren't always on, they weren't always together, but um, I, it was, I was fascinated with it. And do you remember on our pilgrimage um, last year, I think we walked over to the Basilica of San Saint Prudenciana um, was quite close to um, Saint Mary Major. That was there was an old house church there initially um, called the House of Senator Prudens, and it was thought perhaps that was a house church that Paul did his ministry in, because wow. Paul mentions Prudens in his letters. And that eventually got built up to be a beautiful little basilica. And the apse mosaic in that basilica is the only one I'm aware of that has retained the order of the four evangelists, according to Irenaeus' mm -hmm. reckoning. Um, and so if anyone's ever passing through Rome, um, be sure to make that visit over to see that. It's a very powerful uh, mosaic in, the, in that church about it. That would seem to affirm the idea that in the earliest days of the church, this idea that Irenaeus is affirming was maybe more just the understood view. He wasn't expressing it in words that made it look like he was coming up with this new novel idea that he was passing on what was understood. Yeah, that's and right. then maybe yeah. as the church grows and we have different theological battles and different issues, then Augustine and Ambrose and others start seeing it through different lenses. They start seeing the strengths of the Gospels in different ways. Um, it doesn't become a, a battleground. No, no, this is only something you'd find out in an art studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this wasn't, yeah, this didn't lead to a council to decide which, you know, 
who was the eagle, you know, that didn't come down to a battle because they, they recognize that, that the depth of the Gospels is beyond our ability to limit to one image because there are so many beautiful statements of our Lord in it. But I just think, you know, for a lot of people don't recognize the significance of lions and and angels or men and oxes and eagles in their churches. And uh, this is really the beginning of it, or this is the earliest articulation we have of um, how the four living creatures in the book of Revelation um, are symbolic of, of the four Gospels. All right, Monsignor, why don't we, we're going to pause there. Okay. Next week, we'll pick up at the bottom of page 236 when um, uh, Irenaeus deals with the four covenants of the Old Testament, four covenants of salvation history. And we're going to deal with the fact that if you look in the footnote, that there was a major discrepancy between the Greek and the Latin transmission of Irenaeus's book. Yeah. And we'll look at that next week. Then we'll from there we'll jump over to page 242. I mean, again, there's so much we can look at. But in 242, we'll look at um, a summary statement um, about the apostles and the assumption of the Lord. We'll look at that. And then we'll look at um, 246 in which, again, another statement um, ab about the uh, um, the continuity of the church and the apostles of preserving the one view of God and his son. We'll just look at that. And then we'll, we'll move on. Then we'll jump to page 273, but we'll let you know next week when we gather. Monsignor, would you close us with a, a prayer? Yes, of course. Uh -huh. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you called St. Irenaeus to uphold your truth and bring peace to your church. By his prayers, renew us in faith and love, that we may be always intent on fostering unity and peace. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank, thank all you. of you for joining us on this episode of uh, Deep in History. And look forward to being with you again next week.